May God be within us to refresh us, around us to protect us, before us to guide us, above us to bless us, beneath us to hold us up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There is a lot to talk about in our readings this morning, having to do with God's promises. There is a big change in the Israelite nation, and we have Matthew saying some things that may make you wonder just what's going on around here anyway. So let's have a look. When I last preached in August, I told you the story of Joseph. This story explains why the descendants of Jacob settled in Egypt. A lot has happened and much time has passed since that story. Jacob died, then Joseph died. Eventually, all memories of the great deeds Joseph did to save the Egyptian empire were forgotten. The descendants of Jacob multiplied. Boy, did they multiply. <laughs> they numbered in the hundreds of thousands. They were so numerous that the Egyptians were alarmed that they were an internal threat to the security of the country, and so they were oppressed. How much time did this take? It's hard to say exactly, but several hundred years. Perhaps four or five hundred years seems a good estimate, putting us around 1300 B.C. By the time Moses had received his call to leadership, and all the plagues had taken place, 1290 seems reasonable for the date of the Exodus. In our Sunday readings in the intervening period, since we heard the Joseph story, we've heard several excerpts from the Exodus story. Last week, we heard of Moses looking down from the mountain on the promised land of milk and honey that he was not permitted to enter. Then he died. That is the end of the Exodus. A new chapter now begins for Israel. Joshua assumes leadership and is leading the people of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Recall for a moment the event that began the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, actually probably the Reed Sea, and the Israelites escaping the pursuing Egyptian army. Now notice that the next chapter in the history of the Israelite nation begins with another miraculous parting of the waters. This time it's the Jordan River which is parted, and the whole nation, led by the Ark of the Covenant, walk across on a dry riverbed. Since all the people who had crossed the Red Sea on dry land have died during the 40 years of the Exodus, I can't help but wonder if the significance of this latter event sank into the minds of those who crossed the Jordan on dry land that day. Perhaps it did, since during those long evenings of those 40 years wandering in the wilderness, when all the sports bars were closed, the cable was continually out and there was no cell service, the people sat around and told stories. They told them 
over and over and over the same stories. They were passed down from generation to generation to generation. This is called oral tradition and is how history was passed along before it was written down. So maybe they did remember crossing the Red Sea. Our reading begins with God commissioning Joshua to take up the work of Moses and lead the people. Joshua then summons the people and tells them that God is going to divide the waters for them so that they may know that there is a great God who will help them drive out the current inhabitants of the land. All those hard-to-pronounce names that Nancy read so effortlessly. (laughs) This is an important point. We tend to put a great deal of emphasis on what God is like. To the Hebrews, he was not known for what he was, but for what he did. This is the story of redemption. In it, God is active. Throughout the book of Joshua runs the theme of God's assurance. Over and over there is his promise, I will not fail you if you do not fail me. God is active and at work in the world. In our striving and working and agonizing for a better and braver tomorrow, he is also striving and working and agonizing right along with us. He does not hold himself aloof from the hopes and aspirations of his people. He is not like some forbidding cross-legged, chubby, grinning statue, sitting indifferently and dispassionately apart, passing judgment upon mankind. The power to control and direct the forces of nature and to mold history to his pattern, those are the characteristics of the Hebrew God. In his actions, he demonstrates beyond all doubt, that he is God. We see this in action in our reading, as God immediately intervenes in history. It is the time of harvest. In the Jordan Valley, this is April, when the river is swollen by the spring rains and the melting snows from the mountains. Therefore, fording the river was out of the question. But the marvel that God told to Joshua and that Joshua told to the people came to pass. As the 12 representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel, you remember that the tribes are each named for one of Jacob's sons, put their feet into the flooding torrent. The waters above are dammed up and the waters below run on to the Dead Sea. The ark bearers stand firm in the bed of the Jordan. This has a double meaning. First, that they're on dry ground. Second, that they stood with rock-like fortitude, holding the ark, the symbol of their God, containing the tablets of the Ten Commandments, in the midst of the parted waters, 
while the whole nation, hundreds of thousands of people, passed by. How could they miss the significance of that event? God keeping his promise to them. What a sight that must have been. Turning now to the passage from Matthew. He delivers a message that humility is the way to attain to God's promises to us. But first, we have a condemnation of corrupt religious officials. Emphasis on corrupt. Particularly those whose attitude seems to have been, do as I say, not as I do. Matthew says that we are to follow their teachings, but not their practices. He then goes on to list some of the particular abuses that have him riled up. Telling people to do things they themselves are not willing to do. Being showy to attract attention. Seeking places of honor. Seeking the best seats. Coveting greetings in public places. You may well ask, what are phylacteries? They are amulets which pious Jews wore in order to obey, literally, the commands of Exodus 13.16, Deuteronomy 6.8, and 11.18. They were leather cases inside which were pieces of parchment containing the texts of Exodus 13, 1 to 10, 11 to 16, and Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, and 11 to 13 to 21. It appears that there was no specific requirement as to the size of these phylacteries, and it sounds as though some particularly egotistical scribes and Pharisees have made them ostentatiously large another manifestation of the desire to be noticed that Matthew is railing about. Again, for clarity, this passage rails against corrupt religious officials. Matthew honors the office they hold, but not the office holder, whom he found unworthy and lacking in humility. Matthew is on a roll. And he goes on to rail against honorific titles, rabbi, teacher, father, master. (laughs) Hold on, just a minute. What was that about call no man father? Let's take a look at that. I would point out that this material is completely without parallel anywhere else in the Bible. It appears only in Matthew and nowhere else. And it is widely disregarded elsewhere in the Bible, including the New Testament. For example, Jesus frequently accepted, without protest, being addressed as rabbi four times in John's Gospel. In the book of Judges, the Ephraimite Micah asks a transient Levite, quote, stay with me, be father and priest to me, close quote. Later in Judges, 
other Jews persuade the same Levite to leave Micah, saying, quote, Come with us, be our father and priest, close quote. St. Paul says he is the father of his Christian converts in 1 Thessalonians, which just happens to be part of our second reading this morning, as luck would have it. In Acts, Luke calls Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David fathers. Paul says Timothy is his son, and that he, Paul, is Timothy's father. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, quote, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel, close quote. Clearly, Paul did not take literally the passage, call no man father, if he was familiar with it at all. He may well not have been familiar with it, since Matthew wrote after Paul's death. In light of this passage, it may be natural to ask whether it is allowed to address a priest as father or mother, as is common in Catholic Christendom. First, a bit of history. At the time of Matthew, there was no Christian priesthood. The offices of bishop and deacon appeared early on in the early church. However, the priesthood was a later development. As originally conceived, each congregation was led by its own bishop, who was ordained to perform all the functions, all the sacraments, particularly the Mass. By the end of the second century, as congregations multiplied, bishops could not keep up with the demands of all these congregations. The office of priest came into being to assist bishops with some of the powers of bishops, notably saying mass, pronouncing absolution, anointing the sick, baptism and marriage, and the power to bless, most of which are not permitted to a deacon. Other functions were reserved for the bishop alone, notably ordination and confirmation. So we know that Matthew was not talking about Christian priests when he said, call no man father. Using this passage to claim that we cannot call a priest father would mean that we could not call professors instructor, which is another translation of rabbi. Further, it would mean that we could not call our earthly dad father either. Also, Recall that Matthew was the rabbi of a synagogue and would have been routinely addressed as rabbi. Perhaps the most pointed New Testament reference to the theology of the spiritual fatherhood of priests is Paul's statement, quote, I do not write this to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Close quote. Just like biological fathers, priests are not all perfect. But they carry an image of God the Father 
that reaches beyond their human limitations. We call priests father or mother because they engender new life within us and lead us to our home in heaven. Reginald Fuller says, calling a priest father means that the priest is the sacramental sign of the presence of God himself as father. It is important to remember that this passage is Matthew's and Matthew's alone. It's also important to remember that Matthew's point was to condemn corrupt religious officials of his time. But really, the most important part of this passage is the last sentence, quote, He who is the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted, close quote. That is Matthew's point throughout this entire passage. And that is the message to take with you from this gospel reading. These readings are summed up in the collect for the day. Quote, it is only by your gift that your faithful people offer you true and laudable service. Grant that we may run without stumbling to attain your heavenly promises. By God's gift, the Israelites obtained the heavenly promise of their own promised land flowing with milk and honey. By God's grace, we can likewise attain to God's promise by being servant to all and humbling ourselves before our God. Amen.